Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking part in this immersive listening experience. A meaningful existence is a moving target that no matter how close will always be out of reach. We hope this message finds you with an outstretched hand. As we attempt to uncover complex truths, remember, life's toughest questions can be answered if we all just focus on one thing. Being good people. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Good People. Before we get the show started today, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating. It helps a ton. Today, I was joined by Dr. Eric Magram. He's an assistant professor at James Madison University in the Department of Kinesiology. We talked about his research on emotional intelligence and its relationship to effective coaching, the important aspects of adherence to any fitness program, how life is really all about the little moments, and the main benefits of exercise come psychologically. This was one of my favorite conversations we've had thus far. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for doing this. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you, get to know you a a bit better. Um, I've heard many things about you from uh, a couple of, I guess, students of yours, mutual people that we both know. Um, But let's start with, uh, tell us a little bit about you, um, what it is that you study, what it is that you do. So I am right now an assistant professor of kinesiology at James Madison University. Um, My primary role here is teaching. I teach strength and conditioning related coursework, and that's what I was brought here to do is enhance the curriculum in strength and conditioning. Um, And that's how I think you know some of uh, the the people you you just mentioned. Um, What do I study? I study uh, quite a lot of things. Um, I have three primary areas of research. First is coaching effectiveness, essentially understanding what makes a really effective coach versus an ineffective coach or perhaps an expert coach. So essentially outlining the continuum of not so good. These are things we want to avoid. These are behaviors. These are actions we want to get away from. The effective behaviors, okay, what do really good coaches or effective coaches more accurately do? And then what do the best of the best do? And that led me to emotional intelligence research, which is my primary, my primary line of re- research. And then I, I, I also do research in resistance training um, on a more surface level. Uh, and then I also look or dabble in the scholarship of teaching and learning, which is uh, essentially how do I increase my pedagogy so that I can communicate the information a little bit better? Because as I think that you are aware of, by the very nature of this podcast and the name of the podcast, it's not what you know that matters. It's how you can communicate what you know that really matters. That was a great question. Uh, answer to the question. Yeah. Okay. I studied uh, communications at JMU and that was something that um, one of a lot of the professors there, it's like, it doesn't matter what you're studying, what you're doing. It's the way that you communicate it. That's important. And if you can't do that, then it doesn't matter what you know or things, things like that. Yeah, there was... Um, there was a couple moments, maybe not specific moments, but there was many times in my career, uh, particularly during my master's program, where I was I was coaching and working with elite level athletes, um, and some of my colleagues were like some of the smartest people you would ever meet in sports science. Like these people work with professional teams. These these people were so intellectually smart. I was like, you would never want to get into an argument about or, or a philosophical debate against these individuals because they would literally walk circles around you intellectually. However, when it actually came to communicating that, it was all very, very deep and it was very hard to attune any meaning to it. So I always found bringing it back to where does the rubber meet the road and how do we actually communicate this information uh, is really important. And that goes to people skills. And that's ultimately why I ended up going to the University of Georgia to study sport pedagogy, uh, which is essentially coaching. Cool. Um, this, this is just something that I think about pretty often. Um, and it's, it, I, so I coach at a CrossFit gym. Um, I have my own viewpoint. I always joke I'm the most anti-CrossFit CrossFit coach there is just because, uh, I'm constantly <laughs> trying to prove it wrong. Um, I'm, and this is a conversation that we could get down, um, go down for a long time, but there are some fundamental things that I think create a lot of perception about CrossFit the methodology and the people that do it that shouldn't be in place if there was coaches that almost inversely of what you are saying 
they're great at delivering information, but on the technical side, there's a pretty big lack of focus on that. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's a constant and in, in, um, common debate among CrossFit coaches of, would you rather have a coach that is like this technician that has all of that technical information, or would you have a coach or would you rather have a coach that has people skills, has a great personality? Obviously, like the answer to that question is the people skills and the great personality. But I've always been like, why are we comparing these two things to one another? Like they're two separate attributes that we need to develop on their own. You do need to have great people skills and be able to communicate. But like that doesn't mean you can't understand, you know, along the lines of what we're talking about, whatever it is you're trying to improve from a physical perspective, the different aspects and attributes of that specific style of training. Yeah, I could go on this for a long time. You're essentially arguing the art and the science of coaching. Which one's more important? And the answer, in my opinion, is 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 neither. It's both, and it's the the where the art truly comes in. Yes, the people skills you have to have those. However, it also is. It's almost like you trying to paint a picture. You can't look at a piece of art and say that's a crappy piece of art because you don't know what. You don't know everything that went into creating that piece of art. And I really can't appreciate art because I, I barely draw stick figures well. However, the art of coaching is understanding that the sciences are your colors and then your canvas and how you paint with those colors. Use the sciences to create physiological adaptations and to create culture and all of those things. That is the art of using those sciences to create a beautiful picture or a beautiful culture that is conducive for people to chase success and develop in all sorts of different ways, whether they be psychological or physiological. Um, so I do think the answer resides right in the middle of those two opposite ends of the spectrum. And it's, I think it would be dishonest of us to say we could have one without the other. We have to have a certain level of both, I guess. Cool. And I, I love I do that think, analogy. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I love that analogy and I'm going to use that analogy because that is an idea that I have a hard time articulating sometimes where my answer to that question is there's no none of the individual attributes matter. It is the combination of all of them together, how your personality as a coach meshes with the personality of the athlete and the culture and the system and the group. And, and it creates the final product, which is also consisted of many different variables and attributes, but the paint on the canvas is a really simple, elegant way to put it. Yeah. And the idea you've, you've essentially created that continuum the, the diametrically opposed continuum, the, the, you imagine a nerdy sciencey guy that can't speak into anyone and can't, he could tell you everything there is to know about sliding filament theory and block periodization and how long-term phase potentiation should work. He could tell you all that, or she, he or she could tell you all of that, but they cannot have a conversation. It, they are the folks that are awkward in conversation. You're like, am I offending them? Like, are they even interested in what I'm saying? And then you have the exact opposite side that they can't tell you the mechanics of a back squat, but they, they are the most personable people. You just want to be around them. The people that send you Christmas cards that you haven't seen in like four years, they have very, very good people skills, but they lack competency where they need to. And you do need a certain floor level or requisite level of competency or else, no offense, even if you're the nicest guy or gal on the planet, if you don't know what you're doing, I am not following you. I am not listening to what you're saying. But if you have both of those things, as we're both suggesting, that's where it's what I call magic in the forest. Like you have a lot. You, the sky is the limit for your success. Cool. Emotional intelligence is probably not the first thing that a lot of people think of when they think of coaching effectiveness, uh, as opposed to technical understanding, like what, the things we're talking about, application to a system, yeah. et cetera. Um, how important uh, of an attribute is it against some of those other variables? I'm, I try to be very precise in what I say. So I, I'm, I'm going to pick at the question a little bit. So the how important when compared to other variables, it's very difficult to do that because that requires advanced statistical modeling and EI is not, or emotional intelligence is not the most accurate of measures most of the measures we actually have on ei 
our psychometrics and our self self report. So it's essentially how on a scale of one to five, Joel, how, how well do you think you process your emotions? How well do you process the emotions of others? And how well do you use those emotions to influence behavior? Um, now, I will speak to this more anecdotally or from a practitioner perspective than I will from a research perspective, because there is a whole host of research that suggests emotional intelligence is important in business and sport, in life success, in coaching success. I actually did my dissertation on emotional intelligence and it predicting coaching success in volleyball and basketball coaches. Uh, and what we found was it was impactful for basketball coaches, but not volleyball coaches, which is interesting in and of itself. However, in a practitioner perspective, I believe that EI is essentially your ability to take the emotional temperature of the room. So imagine your thermostat. You are able to see when your athletes walk into the room or when you are in the warm-up, uh, you're, you're working out your CrossFit class, and you, you notice, generally speaking, the class is right here. This is their state. This is their average. They're usually talking about this much. That person's usually telling a joke. That person's kind of by themselves. But that's not how it is today. Your ability to attune to that emotional environment and take the emotional temperature of the room and say, all right, it's usually 70 degrees. That's where we need it to be for us to have a really good training session. Right now, it's 65. What do I need to do to make it closer to 70 so that we can actually move barbells quickly? We can actually hit positions that we're going to be advantageous for us? Or is it 75? Are we way overstimulated? Are we, the emotional temperature is one of, all right, this is more of like a, a party after a big win or something. So are we in the right mindset to actually go do some work? So it, there is a fluctuation in your ability to essentially regulate that or identify first the emotional temperature of the room and then understand what do I need to do is really why it is important. Because it's coaching, as I think you would agree, it's not about things, it's about people. And if we don't understand emotions, we can't understand people. So that's why it is important. Uh, and research would back me up on that in a variety of different domains. But from a practitioner perspective, I would rather have a coach high in EI and just at the requisite level of competence than the other way around, if that makes sense. Yeah, cool. I, uh, I'm going to use this as sort of like a lens to frame the next couple questions of like the temperature of the room. I like that yeah. a lot. Um, is knowing the temperature something that is just kind of an innate thing that we that we have? Obviously, I'm sure there's probably a little bit of, I'll use the word talent when it comes to that. Some people have mm -hmm. it more than others, but I'd imagine this is a skill that can also be built. Um, to what degree can that be built? Uh, and if so, how can coaches go about sort of developing that awareness? So... It absolutely can be built again to what degree that requires an assessment. And there's a lot of problems with assessments and we're not going to go down the scientific methodology of, of those things. So to what degree you can improve it? I think a, a significant margin. I think if you are trying to get better at understanding emotional intelligence, the first thing it starts with is you. It look, it starts with the person in the mirror and it starts with understanding what emotions are you feeling and potentially why are you feeling those things? And it's always, or usually in response to a change in your relationship with the environment, okay? So let's say you have somebody who is who comes into your CrossFit gym and who is very new, okay? They're going to be a little timid, and, and you should know, okay, as they walk in, this person's new, they're going to be a little bit timid. However, as as time progresses, they're going to they're going to meet people, they're going to learn how to exist in that environment and they're going to be more comfortable. Your ability to attune to that relationship is your emotional intelligence. And it can be taught just in the same way as we can teach people how to be uh, counselors psychologically. We can teach people the observation skills, which is really what this comes down to is astute observation and then cause effect. If this, then that. So Joel, let's say every time you walk into the gym and you have that shirt on that green sweatshirt, for whatever reason, when Joel has the green sweatshirt on, we're going to get after it and we're going to, we're going to set a PR. Like the last four times he's worn that sweatshirt, he's done that. And this is a very simple example, but you can switch out the sweatshirt for a demeanor, a general way of being in a space. And if you are astutely enough observing those sort of things, you can create 
very, very loose connections between cause and effect. So if I know Joel is wearing the green shirt or if Joel is acting in this sort of way, that generally means he's about to get after it. Or if the exact opposite is true, Joel wears the black sweatshirt and that just means he's going to have a terrible day, absolutely terrible day. Or if I know Joel usually has his hair done and he comes in all disheveled and he hasn't shaven in 14 days, okay, something's going on and I need to ask about that. So it's really about deviations from a norm or an average. And in this way, it is a very nerdy way of looking at it. But if you can sort of attune to what the average level and every per, everybody's everybody's level is going to be different. But if you can sort of gauge that and know what's normal, what's not, it will give you the ability to say, hey, Joel, I, I just noticed you're, you're not yourself today. Is everything okay? Everything going on? And it allows me to ask further questions. And then maybe you say, yeah, I got, I got four exams this week. Oh, okay. Let's, let's do something about, let's, let's, let me see if I can help support you in that. And maybe you're just like, no, okay. I'm, I'll be good. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm there and you know that I am attuned to what's going on. So in a way, emotional intelligence is a doorway to be a better communicator. It is a doorway to be a better influencer of people by way of relationship. And if you read anything about coaching, which I assume you have, it is about relationships. No coach worth their salt is going to tell you it's not about relationships. Yeah. Um, something, uh, particularly in this field that really bothers me is, um, the stuff we're talking about becomes such a focus for people that they forget that, um, where it's like, Okay, when I'm talking to somebody, I have to really focus on these five steps to a more of, to be a better listener. Of like, mm. dude, if you just sit there and look at the person, and you listen to the words coming out of their mouth, and you think about it, and then you respond to them with the information that you have and the stuff that you know, like it's really, is it as simple as that? Because I think, like you said, we're talking about it in this very specific context and like nerdy intellectuals, but. Um, it's, it's really just about caring. It, it is. It's a little more than about caring. And I'll give you an example. I had, I had a friend in high school and he, we had a wide receivers coach, um, that wasn't, he was super caring. He cared, like he cared, man. He was there and he cared but he lacked competence. So back to our continuum, he cared a lot, but lacked competence. So my friend was always like, dude, I I love this guy, but he's not making me a better wide receiver type thing. And so again, we got to get to the, it has to have a certain level of competence because no one cares. Like you would not care. You'd be like, yeah, this, this bald guy here cares a lot about me, but he doesn't, he can't make me better. So it's a little bit more than caring, but I would argue that you need to care in order to want to try to get better at these things. And I do agree with you. If I'm thinking right now, like, okay, how do I, how do I make sure that I'm attuning to what Joel is speaking about? How do I make sure that I'm okay? When Joel says this, I, I attune to that. If I'm thinking about that, there's no way I'm actually being able to attune to anything you're talking about. So it does take a lot of practice. And one of the things that I used to do all the time was practice genuinely listening. Mm. And it, it does. It's, it's just like practicing a squat or a snatch or a clean or a jerk. It is about genuinely practicing. At first, you're going to blow at it. It's gonna, you're going to be like, wow, I got nothing. But brick by brick, Rome was built, or brick by brick, you get better at attuning to information and understanding, okay, this is how I genuinely listen and this is how I follow up. And maybe I ask a question like, hey, can you re- can you reapproach this? And because I, I don't quite understand the way that you put that. Is that just like the self-assessment? I know we were talking. You talked about that. Like, there's many ways and issues with assessment, but like from a personal development perspective, as it relates to this profession, is there a simple framework that you give people to keep in mind when they're thinking about? Okay, this is something that needs to be improved upon. How can I measure the improvement? Like back squatting is easy. Am I squatting right. heavier? Well, how do yeah. how do I know if I'm a better listener? That's a really good question. Um, I think that might be better. That's a really good question. Um, you may have people that are in your inner circle 
that you associate with your associate yourself with and you work with on a very regular basis, you may have them fill the form out on your behalf, meaning how well do I think Joel listens? And I say this because when we do self-reported questionnaires, we, we are not the best. It, it is a valid, it is a reliable measure, but at the same time, some people, like I have, I've literally asked coaches and I've sat in a room and had coaches fill this out and I've then watched their interactions and I have witnessed what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect where you think you're the emotional tiger wo- or emotional intelligence tiger woods and you are actually more like that no-name golfer on on Sundays who thinks that they are tiger woods type thing so I will say just because you think a, a 5 is this for you that that may mean a 2 for me or that may mean a 10 for me type thing so I don't know that we need to give people assessments but it may be helpful to just ask hey I, I really look into improve my listening skills can you monitor that? Can you just pay attention and attune to, hey, how well do you think Joel's listening? Because over the next like two or three months, I'm really going to focus on that. That may be a better indicator because when you have other people do it, and maybe you have more than one, uh, when you have other people do it, that's going to be probably a better estimation of your own. That doesn't mean you can't do it yourself or fill out one of these self-reported questionnaires. However, if you have no sort of area or litmus test to base base this off of it's going to be difficult for you and I, I do think it will be fairly obvious once you reach a certain level of improvement because gotcha. you'll be like yeah i can attune to this better i i can have better conversations yeah and to that point like five years ago i wouldn't probably be confident enough to have this conversation or speak to the people in the way that i speak to them at the gym or give somebody advice on fitness i know that that's improved i just I don't know how much, a whole lot, but it's tough to quantify that stuff. It really, I mean, quantifying an emotion because joy for one person may not be joy for another person. The, the term may not mean the same thing or frustration may not mean the same thing. You could be frustrated, but you could be improving or you could just be frustrated and you could be like, I hate my life right now because this, this, and this, and this. So again, all these emotions, emotions are subjective to the individual and how they're experiencing and when they are experiencing them. Uh, In your experience, and maybe you have numbers and research to back this, what exactly does higher emotional intelligence from a coaching perspective lead to? Is it better adherence to a program? Is it better results overall? Like I'm curious to see what areas you've looked at how this variable affects things in general. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, there is quite a bit of, not, I, I shouldn't say quite a bit. There is some evidence that suggests that your emotional intelligence can help you choose leadership styles, can help you create what are called emotionally competent group norms. This is actually from a military population study where you, if you improve the leader, as the leader of the group, if you improve your emotional intelligence, the emotional intel, the emotionally competent group norms, meaning the things that everybody holds sacred. Like if you are constantly like, Hey man, how you doing? How you doing? If, if you ask questions about those sort of things, other people are going to attune to that and be more likely or more probable to ask other questions, thus creating more of an emotionally competent group norm, which again is related to adhesion or sorry, group cultural or group. Co- cohesion sorry i couldn't find my word cohesion which leads to superior performance that was in nurses actually um you can also understand when to lead when to step back when to when to step up and understand hey maybe this person just needs to be in charge right now maybe this person needs a win right now so it essentially allows you to you know roundabout way be emotional chameleon So understanding what the environment needs me to be in that time and space, just like it needs me to either elevate or depress the temperature of the room, it allows you to read situations better and understand, all right, Joel, green shirt. I don't need to do anything. Joel, black shirt. Okay. I got to go have a win one for the Gipper speech. Or he doesn't respond to that because I've tried that before. Cause effect. All right, now what am I going to say? I'm going to go approach it like, showing him that I care. And maybe that switches it from 
not totally black shirt to green shirt situation, but it might go from black shirt to blue shirt. We're blue shirt. Hey, day's okay. But all of that allowing me to get in and to essentially process those emotions allows me to help solve and create better outcomes. And this is shown across a lot of literature, sales, um, even life satisfaction, um, money in, I think it's banking. So there's a lot of different things that this can help you with. And I think at the most fundamental level, it will help you have better conversations, create better relationships shown in uh, spouses, create better relationships, which are the bedrock for effective coaching. You can't create good relationships. You can't be, I would argue, you're going to have a harder time being an effective coach. It, it is it just like, and you could, I want you to answer this in like a, this could be a totally wrong framework to view this from. It's almost just like the emotional intelligence increases the quality of these little micro interactions that we have throughout the day with the people that we interact with. And long term, it seems like that leads to better results from a program perspective, but also like a contentedness with life. Is that it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I like you said those micro interactions. Absolutely. It enhances your ability to positively affect. I mean, let's say even if it's 1%, 1% that, that most people be like, I'm not signing up for 1%. I'm not doing all, but 1% every single day. That's a huge change. 1% better. And emotional intelligence was actually devised from social intelligence. And that's to act wisely in social situations and emotional intelligence evolved from social intelligence. And essentially, the goal is to get a superior life outcome, whether that be in your case, being a CrossFit uh, person or coach, you can, if you are able to get that person to instead of 65 degrees, if 70 degrees is the goal to 65 and a half, they may squat more weight, which that doesn't sound like a big deal. However, you squat more weight today, tomorrow, the next day, the next week, very, very small changes in performance lead to very big changes over time. So back to your micro interactions suggestion, absolutely, it enhances those things, but it also enhances your ability to cope with stress. Think about you have a really stressful day and you don't, you, you have an absence of emotional intelligence and you just, you're in a bad mood and you can't understand why at the gym, I, I, this is all normally working for me. None of it worked today. Zero things. And what you didn't understand was your car tire blew out this morning and you had to change it on the way to the CrossFit gym. That one negative interaction influenced your mood, your emotions for the rest of the day. And you were, you were filtering those emotions through something called emotional contagion. So emotions are contagious. Just like if somebody's really enthusiastic around you, you're going to tend to be more enthusiastic. Somebody's really depressed around you, you're going to gravitate or pick up on those emotions and that's going to be more, you're going to take those on. So what you didn't understand is your tire blowing out made you have a bad day by this much, but that this much influenced everybody else negatively instead of your normal positive self, which improved positive. So instead of going this direction, you go this direction. And it might be small, but as we know, small things mean a big difference over time, like compounding interest. Does that yeah. make sense? That makes sense. Are you more concerned with helping? Obviously, you know, we've this is the conversation we've been talking about. If the performance of the athletes that you're coaching isn't improving, there's an error with the system that you have. But are you more concerned with that? And I'll give you a good example. I train a handful of high school athletes. Uh, particularly a group of boys that I'm talking about or I'm thinking about. And it is very important to me that their program is effective because they're at a very important developmental stage of their life that they're not going to get back and you can't do it over with them. But what's more important for me to them is giving them um, a good mindset involved with training that they can take with them and apply. I don't care what they do athletically. I want to be able to give them something that they can pull from for the rest of their lives, lives, whether it's in a tough real life situation or they do take it far with athletics. Um, so I would say for me, the this emotional intelligence developing the mind is 
number one priority for me with athletes, especially young athletes. Um, I would, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is it just like the stuff we've been talking about where I know they're obviously both important, but where are you directing most of your attention when it comes to developing athletes? So you've specified a youth population. Yeah. How old are these kids? Uh, 14 to 16. Yeah. My number one goal, first and foremost, always is injury prevention and then performance in that population right there. It's make them not hate working out the relationship between working out and good things and working out and bad things. That's really what you're, you're trying to strengthen right now. Why? Cause you know that resistance training is a lifelong tool or a lifelong habit, hopefully that can improve people's lives exponentially. Like if, if we had a pill that was all of the benefits of exercise in a, in a pill, it would cost more than just about every other thing that we can give you. Okay. So you want to strengthen that. And that's, that is my goal as well. Like when I'm teaching in my classrooms, when I teach on youth resistance training, my first goal is first do no harm. Don't injure them. Don't do crazy stuff because it doesn't, you do not care how good they are on the JV basketball team or the JV, whatever, or the varsity team, because the goal is not to be the, the goal of your whole existence is not to be the best varsity basketball player possible. The goal of most people, like 95% of people in this society is to live a productive life and doing so requires us to systematically stress the body so it adapts positively so it can handle the rigors of that environment. So for me, that's the number one thing with that population. Make them have fun. If they can have fun and work out and get better, that's magic in the forest. I mean, th- this is one of the things that CrossFit does so well in from my outsider's perspective. Now, I, I will tell you, I've, I've never been in a CrossFit box or a gym. I've never watched, if you will. However, I just know how people talk about it. You have an environment that's supportive. You have an environment where people are doing something that, that they should be doing, in my opinion, working out, and they're getting better. And people are like, hey, yeah, I saw you squat. That was awesome. You, you put on five more pounds, or you did this workout for this time. That's a perfect environment to create a – it's a supportive environment that's going to lead toward greater levels of adherence to exercise for a longer period of time. Do I care about their performance? Yes, I care about it as much as they care about it. And they need to get better because if they don't get better, people quit. If we have progressive athletes, if we have people who are improving, you don't have problem athletes. However, when you have problems is when you have people who are stagnant. So absolutely, my main goal is to do no harm, but also cultivate a a love or a funness or a fun feeling when it comes to working out because we want to stimulate that for our, the life, not just, hey, we got you better at high school football or high school softball or volleyball and see you later afterward. No, I want to stimulate or create a lifelong habit, not just perhaps four years of a varsity player who's slightly better at basketball or insert other sport. Gotcha. This kind of prompts up something that just popped into my head of uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about the differences between high performing athletes and regular folks like GPP, general physical preparedness. And um, that's to me, you know, like the tools are always obviously the same, but I think that nobody would argue the fact that a CrossFit program is probably not the most efficient program that you can follow for peak athletic performance, right? But it's a system, and for a lot of the reasons that you just went over, that works very well for people to get them in great shape, to do things like putting a barbell on their back that they probably would never do otherwise. Uh, And it gives them a community and environment to be in that is supportive and makes them feel good about exercising. Um, Is that sort of dynamic performance training versus how you would train regular folks, something that you give a lot of thought to, uh, or, or a system that maybe you've, um, developed in your head. Can you just like speak on that in any way? So I'm, I'm a little, I'm not necessarily understanding the question in per se. Um, I guess, um, let me reword it. Um, to you, are you, I think it's talking to you, the emotional intelligence is, 
box number one as it relates to whether I'm training the best athletes in the world or I'm training 65-year-old Betty on standing up from the toilet. That's number one. Emotional intelligence is there. Uh, are there other carryovers that you see? Like, is, are, are the training methods the same? Um, are there any other similarities between those two things outside of that emotional intelligence? Yeah, so the tools are all the same. I mean, there's a reason why you go to division one college football programs or, or high level strength conditioning facilities, you're not going to see some crazy stuff. You, you're probably going to see the same things that you do at the rec center. Although hopefully they're being done at, at a much higher level with greater weights and higher precision. But there's a reason that people back squat. There's a reason that people deadlift, people clean, people snatch, people jerk. It's because those are the things that have stood the test of time. And those are just in certain populations, you just prescribe different dosages, whether that's intensity or volumes. And in that those are the things, the tools remain the same. For example, contractors, they all use drills. One might be a DeWalt drill, one might be a Ryobi drill, but they all use a drill. Nobody's out there screwing in screws like this with a screwdriver. They're doing it with a <laughs> drill. So do, do people use, I'm a homeowner, I have a drill. Do I use it the same as a professional contractor or construction? Absolutely not but I still use the same tool. It's just in a different dosage, volume and intensity, if you will. So yes, I do think when we try to reinvent the wheel all the time, it, the effectiveness goes way, way down. And that's why most, most of the best strength and conditioning professionals or folks involved in that space, sports science, strength and conditioning, they all do very similar things. It's just the way in which they create the culture or maybe the program is, is slightly different, but a lot of them are doing the same things. And it's not, yeah. there's, there's no secret sauce. And that's one of the biggest things that I think people, people think that there's a secret sauce. There isn't a secret sauce. That's that the sense. thing about everything in general, in my opinion, I was having a conversation this morning with one of the older members at the gym. And he was saying how he was thinking about me the other day because we talk all the time about some of our favorite moments are just like sitting in the garage with a podcast on, drinking coffee, deadlifting, taking like an hour and a half to do seven working sets, you know? And I've been thinking about that idea a lot where it's like, there's no, people think of their life like there's going to be this overarching thing and there's one extravagant moment that happens and, we're building up to it, but that's not true. Like this is it. What you're living right now is your life and it's going to be like this forever and it'll get a little better and it'll get a little worse, but it's just going to keep on going. And so I think it's good to recognize moments like being in the garage with a cup of coffee in the morning, deadlifting by yourself. That's the best time you're ever going to have. Similarly, like there's no secret sauce to strength training. It's those moments, the micro moments that matter. Yeah. Wow. Like I got goosebumps when you said what you, when you were just talking about it. And I say that because I be literally believe that I, I thought, and I, I call that the Rocky moment where Rocky's on top. Like that's, that's what I call that. And I thought that that moment was going to occur for me um, early in my life or early in my life. It was all leading up to getting my PhD. And when I defended my PhD, I thought it was going to be that moment at the top of the mountain. And then I quit. I very quickly realized that it was not like it was, it was another day. And what you just said, those small moments are the moments that we need to attune to because those are the moments that true joy, true, you're doing the thing for the joy that is created within that moment. Like, again, you said it takes you an hour and a half to do seven sets of a deadlift or whatnot, and you're drinking your coffee. Or, I, I love that. Um, last night, in fact, my, my, my wife does a lot of gardening, and I'm just the laborer that helps her with that. And we were out, outside. We were trying to make our own tomato cages. And I thoroughly – it's the silliest, but I thoroughly enjoy just helping do that. And then, and then we had – we made our own pizza last night. We were sitting out on the deck and we were just enjoying being in the company of each other. And, and those are those small moments that truly matter. It is not these rocky moments. And I do think that 
Hollywood and other things, social media in particular, have created the idea that there are these rocky moments, as I'll call them, where you just euphoric, if you will. And there are some moments that are more or less euphoric, but it's more about trying to take pleasure in the everyday things. And I'll be honest with you, my wife has done a phenomenal job about helping me with try to enjoy those moments because I, I tend to not enjoy the moment as much as I probably should. Um, and this is a nice reminder of that. We're the same. Like my girlfriend, I say this all the time. Her default mode is the is that. I she's always like, call your mom, call your grandpa. Hey, put your phone down. Let's let's yep. let's do this together. And I'm always like, oh, you're right. Like I wish that my default mode was being mindful of those things in general. Yeah. Um same. The same is here. My my wife is that person. My wife balances me out with that and that's that's why I married her. She's wonderful and she makes me better, particularly in that way. Yeah. Cool. Um, this is kind of a good transition. Uh, in your bio for your JMU professor thing, among the things that you like to do are home improvement projects. Um, is that that for you? Is that that hobby for you that gets you there? Yeah. Um, I love building stuff. And whether that is in a metaphoric sense, building a program or building a culture, or that is actually putting wood together with wood glue or screws or nails or whatnot. I, I love trying to figure something out, but I love the process that that involves, like literally just figuring something out. My wife calls it tinkering. When I get to tinker, when I just get to try to solve something and create a physical object, that's why I love mowing the grass so much. I can see my progress in front of me. I just, I did the, that swipe and this swipe and I'm making, there's a progression, if you will. And it's like, it's awesome. We're having success right now. When you're erecting something, when you're building something, you get that. You get that satisfaction. In, in my personal line of work, you, it's, it's all, it's mental work. It is not physical work a lot of the time. Although you have to, put fingers to tight or to keys to create said work. It's not as satisfying when you resurrect a paper as when I resurrect like the screen, screen porch. My wife and I did, we screened in our porch, which was an undertaking that was very intimidating to me because I've never taken siding off of my house before and then had to reside and then do all that stuff. But luckily my, my father-in-law was in construction forever, so he was able to literally help me do that and watch me and tutor me through that. It was so satisfying, oddly satisfying. And that, that's, that is where one of my good friends, Mika Mananen, is, uh, he, he researches motivation. And he, he doesn't believe, other than those instances that I just talked about, that there is true intrinsic motivation so those are those moments where you're truly doing the thing for the satisfaction of doing the thing. Um, I guess I have a question on that. Do you mean like a, a hobby, essentially a hobby or a thing that yeah, you're doing that, for the joy of doing? That's yes. the only time. Cool. I actually said that recently on a episode where I was like, yeah. so I have this framework that I have in my head of finding fulfillment in life. There's like four pillars to it essentially mm -hmm. and the the bottom one which is prioritized the least but is important is a hobby and it's yeah. that what i like playing video games i love playing video games it's probably not great for me to do it but from a physical health and i'm also maybe at times could be doing something more quote-unquote productive but i just love the process of doing that thing among other things you know mm -hmm. um but how important are hobbies uh, in, in general, maybe you could even relate this to like in, encouraging your athletes to do something like that, but having a hobby. I think having a hobby is, is truly important because there's something, and I, I don't know what this something is that when you remove yourself some, from an environment, like let's say if my goal is to be the best researcher, which to be clear is not to be the best researcher in the world, but if my goal is to be the best researcher in the world, I would tend to spend a lot of time doing research and reading research and all that stuff. However, I would argue you get more and it, it's counterintuitive, but instead of just spending eight hours at work or 20 hours at work, 
you probably get more. There is something in our soul, in our mind, whatever it is, I'm not sure. When we remove ourselves from an environment or from a task and go do something else, we are able to subconsciously chew on or think about what we are then doing. I cannot tell you how many times I will be up at night and I'll be working on a lecture. Like, I just can't figure out an analogy for this. I'm a big analogy guy. I can't figure out an analogy or I can't figure out how I want to do this. And then I leave, I do something else. I go to sleep, I go work out. I go, and then when I come back, I have the answer magically. Because I was able to mull over or think about for just a significant period of time, and then I did something different that allowed my brain to chew on it, and I have more novel ideas. I have more creative juices flowing. I, I'm just more productive when I do that as opposed to, no, I'm going to do this for 20 hours. Or I'm going to do this for eight hours. When I, when I go and come back, go and come back, and I usually infuse something that's pleasurable or a hobby in those, those time frames, it's always very helpful. And it, it can't be understated that success breeds success. When you're successful in a hobby, it gives you, for lack of a better term, a dopamine response. When you have successes, they lead to more successes. That's why people who have built a lot of wealth and then they lose it all, they do it again. Versus people who have never done that, it's hard for them to do that. When you, when you have certain successes, it builds on each other. And that's why I think training is so so vastly important. Beyond any physiological benefits, you have the benefit of I just had success here. That means I can go, if I apply the same principles, I can go be successful there, which is honestly how I started uh, with weight training and how I started on my path that I'm on right now. Yeah. Uh, is it important that, that like the outcome of the hobby isn't as much of a priority? For example, another one of my hobbies is jujitsu. I mean, I obviously want to do well mm. with jujitsu and, and continue to push myself and get better at it. But yeah. Like if I have a bad session, I don't beat myself up over it. I just go home and eat ice cream and I'm good to go. You yeah. Know? Like, I, I don't I don't think I don't think that it has to always be that way, but on some level it does, simply because if you if I was terrible at building stuff, if you were terrible at jujitsu, like you were people were like, Man, he come in again and he hasn't he hasn't gotten better. he's gotten worse type thing. You do have to have, have some progress in that. But yeah, for like the reinforcement of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean no one, or at least nobody that I know or associate myself with, would continue to do something if they're not getting slightly better. So there has to be some sort of reward for you, whether that is sufficient just to, hey, I'm, I'm just enjoying my time here, or no, I'm enjoying my time, but I'm also slightly getting better. That's usually when we have the best mix. Cool. Um, what do you hope? I know there's a lot of avenues to your work. What do you hope? Maybe there's like an overarching goal of accomplishment for that? What do you hope that your work accomplishes? I would hope that people, I would hope that I make people critically assess what they do. And then I would hope that I positively influence them. That, and that's my personal mission is to positively influence people through sport, education, strength, conditioning, so on and so forth. Whether that's giving them slight, a little bit of inspiration or just giving them a different way to think about things. Um, that's really what I hope my, my work does. And I know that may have been specifically targeted at my research, but I, I, I don't necessarily see, I think my teaching is more of that than my research. My, my teaching is more of my way to influence than, than my research actually is, which is not terribly common. Gotcha. Um, something we've asked everybody is what they think a good person is. What, what does it mean to you to be a good person? Ooh, that's a deep one. Um, I think being a good person would be aligning yourself with your moral code, whatever that is. And that's a very subjective answer, but it's a subjective question. That's why I, I do not like the word good, particularly when it pertains to coaching, because I don't know what that means. When I say effective, we can sort of measure that based on behaviors and whatnot. So if, if in the way you're being a good person would be judging yourself or doing an analysis of your behaviors and how they align with your moral code and conduct. Um, and then I guess I would also add 
I would hope that would inc- include treating people with respect because um, that would, I would hope would be in people's moral code. But I do think that would be very dependent on moral code. It's a very cool answer. And I tell myself and try to remind myself a lot of people are going to give me feedback. People are going to say things and recommend things. And my main objective is to never abandon my values. And so whether it's like this sales strategy to get more clients or, you know, what have you, it's, I need to hear the person out, internalize it, and then think about, is this something that I am willing to do? Is it productive? Probably. Is it going to get me more clients? Probably. But is it, do I feel like it is wrong of me to do it? If yes, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I, I think if, if the answer to any of the, is this who I am or what I'm about? If the answer is it's not, this is not who I am. It's not what I'm about. And it's not what I want to associate with that. My answer would be no for doing or conducting whatever that happens to be. I think aligning actions and behaviors with your moral code is very, very important. Cool. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I wouldn't sleep on the psychological benefits of exercise and what it can do. I'm sitting here today because of a, because of a teacher in a class that I took in high school as a junior as in a fitness class. And I, I found the relationship between hard work and results in a physical sense. So I saw my body transform and then, cause I was not a very good student in high school, not a very good student. And so I was able to parlay those successes, hard work results, hard work results, hard work results. And in the gym, they are, it's a, almost a direct linear relationship for a certain period of time. And if you can parlay that into your life, that's where I think true meaning has, because very few people are going to make any money if at all lifting weights or working out or sprinting or whatever, but you are going to have to go do something. And if you can parlay successes in a weight room or in a physical sense, you can absolutely parlay that into academic success or life success at your job or occupational success, so on and so forth. So the transference of success in a physical sense from training can absolutely parlay into other ways or manifest itself in other ways in your life that are very positive. Um, And this, again, goes far beyond the physiological benefits. Awesome. Dr. Magrum, thank you for doing this. This was awesome. This was one of my favorite conversations. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be on. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Good People. If you enjoyed the conversation, please leave us a rating if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.